Welcome to the Rags to Riches show with myself, Terry Blackburn. These podcasts are designed to motivate, educate, and to inspire you to take huge action in your life, to change your life from this moment on. I interview inspiring guests with amazing stories that you can hopefully learn from, relate to, and spur you on to achieve big things. If you want to follow my personal journey and all the different things that we do, please follow me on Instagram, which is Terry underscore Blackburn underscore property. Or on YouTube, my page is Terry Blackburn property. Me, myself, I've been from rags to riches, had nothing. Now I've built multiple businesses in over millions of pounds. I have a multi-million pound portfolio of property up in the northeast of England. I am by no means done yet. So please get in touch if you love the show. If you have any feedback for me, I'd really appreciate that. And I'm happy to help as many people as I possibly can. That's what this show is all about. So enjoy the episode. Take care, have a fantastic day, and don't just take notes, take action. Hi, and welcome to the Rags to Riches show with myself, Terry Blackburn. Now, today's guest is a guy called Adam Lawrence, really experienced guy to give you an idea what he's achieved so far. In around about 13 years, he's been involved in 500 property purchases, rose around about eight figures in JV funding, including a 91-unit portfolio purchase, He's bought and sold businesses. He has a couple of degrees. I think he's a really knowledgeable and experienced guy. Uh, I'll be packed with gems, packed with knowledge, packed with lessons. I'm really looking forward to it. So welcome to the show, Adam Lawrence. Thanks for having me, Terry. Thank you for coming on, mate. I know you're a very busy man, as you can see from those numbers. <laughs> so I appreciate you coming on. Um, really looking forward to it, mate. Um, so Adam, what we like to do on the show, we like to talk about your career so far. We'll try and extract as many lessons as we can from that. And hopefully the listeners can, can be inspired and motivated from that. So um, the three main parts of your career would be the start, just basically how you got into property, how you got into it, how, how that actually happened. The middle part is what everyone wants to hear about, which is the growth, which is how we went from zero units to over 500 units, the big portfolio, raising so much money in JV funding. Just any key points in that in that middle part would be great. And then the last part is just the current, which is what your attention is on right now, where you're going in the next few years and currently. So if you could start by just telling us a little bit about that start, how you how it all started for you, Adam, that, that'll be great. Yeah, sure thing. So I like I, I made I thought I'd made all my mistakes in one go, although really I keep making mistakes as I go along, Terry, to be honest. But <laughs> I bought a new build property in 2006. So pretty much top of the market um, in the West Midlands. Um, and we part exchanged my ex's house into it as part of the deal. So basically, couldn't have done a worse deal, realistically. Oh, and, and we paid the asking price. So that's where I was at in 2006, right? And uh, 2008, um, myself and my, my now ex went our separate ways. So we were left with a house, obviously. I was up for selling it. Uh, she wasn't, and that was primarily because financial crash had kind of was unfolding as we were going through all of this. But wasn't really watching the markets and things at the time of doing something completely different. And uh, I was sort of loosely aware of it because it was on the TV and the, you couldn't really avoid it, could you? But we got the the agents around and basically we paid 275 for this place and they told us we'd get about 225 for it. And we thought, okay, well. We better, what can we do? And of course, what everybody did sort of 0809 when they didn't have to sell it, they rented it. So we rented it out and I went into rental myself. 
because I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll keep an eye on how the market goes. And I didn't, I'd not had a particularly uh, mortgageable, I wasn't particularly mortgageable at the time, especially with um, the one residential mortgage already. So wasn't wasn't sophisticated, didn't really know how to structure the property transactions or anything like that. I thought we'll just rent it out. So we did. And uh, the agent, we got it on, we already put it on the market to try and sell. And then when the, when there was just no traction at the price we paid, they said, well, look, we'll manage it for you. For, we can take it off the market, full management. You won't have to do anything, blah, blah, blah. So like, okay, well, we'll do that. Found a tenant and it was a pain. Every, there was loads of things we had still had to do. And bear in mind, this was a new, it was only two years old, this house. So you weren't expecting to do a lot of work to it. Yeah. Um, and basically, I, I, I got the hump one day when they basically said, we need to change, we needed to change the drum on the washing machine. So we've done it and it was 294 quid or something. I just thought, man, I could have bought a washing machine for that. So I thought, <laughs> sat the agent off. I knew my ex wasn't going to do the work, but I was happy to do it. I just said, look, I'm going to look after it from now on. So that, that was the accidental one, if you like. Um, and then sat in rental waiting for the prices to hit what looked like the bottom. Um, I'd, I'd ha I had some capital, which enabled me to get into another property, uh, which that had been on the market for something like 450 in 2000, early 08, and managed to buy it for 320. So I live in a, a reasonably good area, and that was a real, real good deal. There were better deals around at that time, but I didn't know about them. And I didn't know how to get them, you know. But I was really pleased with that. So lived in there, remortgaged after we did a bit of work. We remortgaged, raised some capital, was able to buy a couple of other properties. Uh, and then, like everybody does read us, both ran out of money at that stage. So had a little bit of income coming in from it, but not certainly not enough not to work and not to work on bringing in more, more income. So uh, I went and did and what I've been doing at the time. It wasn't really working out that well. It was starting to go downhill. I thought, right, I'm going to I'm going to go and do uh, another degree, uh, which was a, a master's degree. So it's only one year. So I did that, and I thought, right, I don't really want to be out of the market, but I just didn't have any capacity to do anything. So I actually I'd signed up with a portfolio building service up in uh, Barnsley Way, which worked out really really badly. I made another ton of mistakes in that. Paid them a load of money up front. Did this. Did that. Ended up working out, if you like, in the end. I've not lost anything from it. I've got one property, but it was about seven or eight years of, of piddling about to, to get everything all done. So it was a bit of a pain, to say the least. But I kind of, I didn't, I didn't sort of let that get in the way. I just put it in the back of my mind and thought, I'm not going to let it stand in the way. But I was out of money um, and I was out of time because the master's degree was very, very, very demanding. So then once I'd finished that, um, I thought, right, I need, I need some money from somewhere. Uh, I had a job at the time, so I was, I was also getting paid enough to pay the bills and things, but I wasn't putting lots and lots of money aside or anything. Um, and then uh, it was a, a chance call. I spoke to an old business partner of mine from years before, and he said, uh, well, actually, we've just inherited some money and we want to invest it in property. So uh, we're looking for someone we can trust who knows what they're doing. And I said, and you can't find anyone, so you'll have to work with me. That sounds ideal. That's brilliant. <laughs> um, so, so <laughs> we were able we were able to I, I found something now bear in mind you know 20 2014 that was um so by then I, I i think i was up to about eight or nine properties that's where i got to in six in the first six years i suppose so that maybe helps put things into context for people who are listening thinking how do you buy 500 you know you start with one and then you get to two and then it, you, you maybe you know you've got to 
it snowballs, right? It, it's a slow start. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was always quite keen on not taking any money out of it and recycling it into the property. And that really, there's no, you know, the, you know, the miracle of compound interest, Albert Einstein, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm just, one of the things that I've used as one of my principles, try not to take it out of the business um, and, keep, and keep growing the business. So uh, I was lucky enough to find a block of flats that was, um, they actually had two commercial units underneath and then 10 flats. And it was a pretty classic story at the time. It had been funded and agreed in 07, you know, built in 08, 09, uh, tenanted in 10, repossessed in 12, and it was 2014. And uh, it, was on the, it was on the market with Edison's. Um, and long story short, managed to buy it. And obviously, again, it was a new build. It, it didn't need a lot of money spending on it at all. So this is a classic Again, more mistakes, right? More mistakes that people can learn from. Absolute classic. We had it valued before we bought it at between 600 and 650 by Rick Surveyor. We agreed the purchase price on it at 462. So at the time, you're thinking, this is a fantastic deal, right? Yeah, yeah. We spent 10K on it. We put some CCTV outside. We spent some money just making it look nicer and more welcoming. Um, there wasn't, it was nearly new build, you know, there wasn't loads to do. There was a, a, one flat to sort of refurb a bit, but it was, in, it was in good nick. We put it out to rent. It rented quite quickly. One of the shops was already occupied and the other shop got occupied pretty quickly. All good. So for those who, who will understand what I'm talking about, it's a mixed use unit. Two shops, 10, 10 flats. So it's primarily residential, 80 whatever percent residential. And even back then, you kind of thought, do you really want high street retail? Mm. Not, not really. It's not my primary choice, but of course, it wasn't the primary part of the asset. So we uh, went, we, we uh, instructed a, a pretty well-known broker who was well-known on the socials at the time, still is actually. And then um, we obviously had this valuation beforehand. And we said, well, look, it must be worth 650 now because we've, we're at the top end of that valuation. We've done all this. And we, the lender was Shawbrook Bank. And basically, long story short, Shawbrook surveyor said it was worth 500. And the reason they did that is basically because we were in for 500 or a bit less and they didn't want to release the equity. Now, luckily, I'd managed my JV partner's expectations to say that this could happen. And if it does, then we're going to pay, spend the first however long it takes paying you back. And then we'll work on splitting the proceeds. So he wasn't happy, but he understood really the broker basically turned around to us and said, look, you've got a choice. I'll start again. We, we contested the valuation. We said, look, we've got this valuation from six months ago or whatever it was. How can it be so different from this valuation? And they just batted it all away, like they do. I don't know if you've ever challenged a load of uh, valuations. They never get anywhere. Like, I own a mortgage brokers, and I think in all the mortgages we've done for clients, I think we've had one. Honestly, it's only ever been one. They actually got over that they agreed and overturned, but the rest and I could, be, I could believe that. I could, but when people say to me they've done it two or three times, I just think I'd like to see the evidence because yeah, yeah. if they have done fair play, they're better than they're better than we are at it. But if we, <laughs> if we ever do it these days, it's more a bit of therapy rather than thinking we're going to get one turned over because it just yeah. doesn't, you know, professional indemnity yeah. reasons, it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. So it is what it is. So we took our medicine on that one, but of course, and, and we, we knew we got a nice thing there. But I'd made no money. No, I'd made no money out of it. But made no money in the now. Do you know what I mean? And worse yeah. than that, my JV partner's got 150 grand stuck in something that he didn't think he was going to be stuck in there. 
So yeah. we we still did a few. We did a few smaller bits and bobs that were very sort of classic. What they like to call BRR or whatever these days. Just straightforward. He bought them cheap, did them up, made them into better things. A couple of HMOs to get the cash flow going. Um, and then single lets primarily, generally houses, generally around the Midlands. So it was quite close to home. And then just started to expand that circle out a little bit. So I'm in South, South Birmingham. It's reasonably expensive. You don't have to go a long way for it to get cheap. But the market's always been very competitive. There's a lot of rooftops. It's very crowded. There's a lot of traders. There's a lot of people with cash. It's reasonably tough to do deals. And it was, I found a few areas which are a bit further away where it's a little bit easier to do deals. So I thought, well, you know what? We managed some of these sort of half an hour away from home. At the time, I was looking after the management with a little bit of help from someone a few hours a week. And I thought, and, and it was getting to the stage, I raised a bit more money, um, spoke to people, showed them what I'd done. Uh, again, people who were friends of mine from previous lives and things like that, family members and stuff like that. Some of them just wanted to lend it out for a rate of return, do it on a debt basis. Some of them wanted to share the equity. So I'm a bit of a people pleaser sometimes, Terry, so I kind of let them choose what they wanted to do and tried to make it work, which is, again, another another mistake that I've made over the years, without a doubt. Um, they don't really do that anymore for obvious reasons. Um, but to be fair, I've not had, you know, I've had, I've had very, very few bad experiences. But some of that is because I, I'm reasonably good on relationship management. Uh, some of it is because I've sucked it up when I've got the worst end of the, the deal, to be honest with you, and just made sure I've carried things on to the end. Um, yeah, and some of it is just luck, <laughs> realistically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, partners have given me different things over the years. Sometimes it's been cash, sometimes it's been expertise, sometimes it's been time. And, you know, the, the people who are closest to me these days are very much very trust, highly trusted. We do a lot of business together. They're well looked after and incentivized. It's a good combination, really, that keeps things going for the long for the long run. So I, I guess I, I was doing most of that through estate agency purchasing, as in purchasing from agents on the open market. Right. Okay. And I want to start getting into auction um and so i did i did that so i basically went to a few auctions and thought blimey this is tough <laughs> you know don't know if i'm ever going to crack this and then i went to a few more trying to buy stuff and i never bought anything just four five six auctions went by i just thought this is i'm getting really really downhearted with it mm. and then I, I sort of changed my focus a little bit started to look at the people in the room and thought what can what can i surmise from them who are they why are they buying it if it's a family who are looking to buy a family home you ain't going to outbid them at the end of the day if yeah, it's a trader you might have a chance if it's another property professional you might have a chance because you might see something they don't they might see something you don't that's how it works at the end of the day um if it's a builder and he's in his his, his overalls and all the rest of it and he's got a plaster splashed all up him you're probably not going to outbid him because what you think is going to be 30 grand to refurb it's going to cost him about 10 and he wants a, a, a drop job for the lads to drop onto when they've got a bit of spare time, you know. So I, I started looking more, and then I started looking at the properties that people, everybody wants the ones that are like have been on homes under the hammer. And they get bid generally, not, not always, there's still some deals like that, but they generally get bid up too high, right? So started specialising in more difficult ones. So or either more difficult 
or actually stupid as it sounds, easier ones. So they look like they should be in an estate agent's window, all shiny, but they don't sell well in the auction room. Just that the auction crowd is not a good buyer of finished product stuff. So I started getting into the real detail of all of this stuff, getting into the psychology of auction, building the relationships with the auctioneers, building the relationships with other people who were trading stock through auction, and then saying to them, well, do you know what? Instead of you flipping it into auction and paying 2% for this and this and this and this, and this was around about the time of 2016, you remember when the old 3% additional lifted out of our pockets came in, you know? So that, that actually, I used that as a bit of a lever because I was like, well, now you've got another 3% to pay if you have to buy. Well, if you sell it to me, I'll buy it and then I'll pay you a fee or whatever, whatever you've secured it at. I don't mind paying the fees as long as the numbers stack up for me. It's no problem. So I kind of, I mean, even people might call them sources. I, I tend to call them more like wholesale traders because they're doing 10 deals a month up to 50 or 100 deals a month. You know, big cash buying companies down yeah. to sort of smaller one-person bands. And I did a lot of business with them. I still do. Still do a lot of business with them. Um, but I was able to go to them at that point and say, look, I've got firepower. I can transact. I will give you a straight answer very quickly. I will do what I say I'm going to do. But they also appreciate if they're going to sell it to me, they're going to sell it for a few quid less than they would get in auction or even to another another vendor, another purchaser who might say to them, but I now trade on my reputation. So they know I'm going to they know I'm going to transact. So there's an advantage there because they know we'll get it done. And the people want certainty at the end of the day. They don't want the best price from someone who says, oh, I'm a cash buyer. I'm a cash buyer. Well, actually, it's a bridge. Well, actually, I've never done a bridge before. Well, you know, and you know, you, you like yeah. I said, you're a mortgage broker. You know how it goes, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just before we jump ahead, I think there's some key points I'd like to explore there. Um, I know you mentioned at the start, well, to, throughout that there, that various business partners, JV partners, the guy with the inheritance and things. Um, do you still do a lot of JVs, and what's your general way of doing that? Because, you know, you might of experiences I heard about it. There seems to be a lot of people at the minute who will jump into bed with pretty much anybody who's got money or, you know, that the people are doing JVs when they hardly even know people. Have you, have you got any advice on that? And how have you sort of done that over the, over the years? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. And the, the thing is a lot of the property education piece is kind of tilted around to people JVing with people. And there is, there can be a big upside in that. Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen many times. Like, oh, I met when when did you meet this person? Oh, you know, last month at a networking meeting. Okay, you know, let's let's just take a bit of time out here because you need to have a good think about this. And I think the best bit of advice is try and make sure they are people with the same values as you, right? And I don't mean they say they've got integrity and all the stuff that everybody always says because they think it's what you want to hear. I mean, what their real values are which sometimes you have to observe them for long enough to know what their values are and so do you know when you, you do business sometimes with people who say like well how do i know that you're not going to do this right and i always think well the, the, that's a big red flag for me because i always think well that means that's probably what you would do in that situation which is why you've thought of it and so it, it puts me off quite a lot now doesn't mean we don't have shareholder agreements and protection and all the rest of it. doesn't mean we don't do risk management. It's just the way that someone thinks is quite important. So that bit, I couldn't emphasise enough they should have the same values. 
Now, that's not easy, but once you've got past the same values bit, you then need them to have a complementary skill set, not the same skill set, because you need them to be good at things. So, for example, I've got a business partner. He loves doing development. He loves building stuff. He loves creating stuff. I can't stand that bit of it. I hate it. I have to get someone to sort it out for me, right? But I love doing the deal and I love structuring the finance. So we can work really well together on that on that basis, right? Um, and so what, what complementary skills can people bring to the party? Um, and, and, you know, why are you doing it? Is someone in the, you know, you've got to understand what your value is in the deal, right? And that's where also it gets difficult because I've seen all sorts of, what do people normally do, right? 50-50, yeah? And I, 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 I do like that and it's fair and it has that, that but okay, so it's 50-50. And what I'm going to do, Terry, is I'm going to put in half the money and then you put in the other half and you do all the work. Is that still 50-50, is it? Well, if it is, you're going to need a nice salary out of it. Or, you know, it, it doesn't look fair anymore. So you've got to, fairness is massively important because especially if you do uh, uh, about seven years ago, maybe, mm. I sat in front of a consultant who was giving me a free, like, taster session. And I was talking through what I'd done and where I got to. And he picked on uh, one, one the partner I mentioned earlier on who'd got and it had an inheritance. And he said, what happens if he gets divorced? What happens if he goes under a bus? What happens if he doesn't want to buy property with you anymore? Where does that, where does that leave you? What happens if he empties the bank account out and he's actually addicted to gambling? Or all of these things. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I get that. I get that. It makes sense. And so I started to diversify by working with multiple partners. Now, some people wouldn't like that or want to do it that way. But this is why, even to this day, I try not, I, I try as hard as possible not to do anything just myself because I don't want my partners to be thinking, well, why is he keeping the best stuff for himself? Why? The only reason I have an investment company that's just mine is because it's bought stuff where I literally I've had to answer then. <laughs> you know, you've got this phone call to decide, do you want it? It's worth 100. You can buy it for 55. It needs a bit of work. Do you want to buy it? Yes or no. Otherwise, the next person's getting the phone call. All right. Yeah, fine. So that'll be that'll be one that will go to me. Or I pre-warn my partners about this stuff. And they say, well, some of them say, well, look, if you buy it, we'll buy it. So not everyone's always got money. You understand we work on a sort of cycle yeah. where we're refinancing and we're purchasing and we're doing all that stuff. So we might have three or four places to allocate a deal to, in which case we just operate on a very transparent, straightforward system. Or we might have only one person who, who's ready to transact at one time. So we know where we know where the deal's going and we've got to work to their their specs. So uh, it's kind of every every one of the companies that I'm involved in has got its own strategy. So some of them will say, look, we'll buy all over the country. Some of them will say, look, we're only buying in the Midlands. We're only buying, we don't want to buy flats. We don't touch leaseholders. There's lots of little mini rules that, that work within the ecosystem, if you like. Yeah. And then my company, which is like, the rules are, if it's cheap, I buy it. That's the rule. <laughs> that's right. the end of the rules, right? So, right. so, so that's why I, so I, I, I found I can do more in J, like for every one you could do on your own, I'd say I can do three to five in a JV because the, the way I've structured the JVs and the margins will be lower because there are more people involved. There are, there are more, there's the same number of moving parts, but more, but in my head, the bit, the bit that I have to do, the creative deal structure or the finance, it doesn't take me loads of time anymore because I'm quite used to it. And I've seen lots. And 
that when I started doing lots of them and thought, right, I need to build an agency on the back of this in order to, you know, take the, the management side away from me because it started to take too much of my time. That was about six or seven years ago I came to that realisation. And then I decided, right, will I buy an agency or will I start an agency? And I went on uh, a training course to try and find out, to try and meet some agents because I thought, well, look, they'll have best practice about how to do the property management properly. Um, and obviously since then, compliance has just gone. It's like being on a torture rack, isn't it? You know, it just gets cranked. Every time, every, every time the policy <laughs> comes out, he's like, oh, here we, here we go, you know, here we go. How can we make it harder for them? Yeah, I think that's um, some great advice there and in, in not rushing it, love the values and, you, you know, maybe just having a meeting to determine exactly what everyone's roles are and making sure it's yeah. complementary, I think is a... Absolutely. From the people that I speak to, and people that message online and things, asking for advice or whatever, um, they, they, I think they kind of put people with money on a bit of a pedestal. And, you know, if they don't have the money, they think like, oh, this guy's got money, so I'll jump, jump in the bed with him straight away. You know, we'll set up a business just because he's got money. But even if he's got loads of money and the values aren't right, or it's not complimentary, shouldn't put the money on the pedestal, right? Because that's... Absolutely. There's a... You know, if you if you just talked about property developers, you would say, really, there's three skill sets. That, there's one sort of overarching skill set I think that they need is that they need to be well organized. And the ones that I see who are successful who are not well organized is because they've employed someone who's very organized. Right. So that, that's sort of the top the top skill. But they've got to ultimately find sites. They've got to ultimately find money for sites and they've got to deliver products. And if they're selling at the end, They've got a sell product as well. So there's maybe four things they need to do really well. And very few of them are very good at all of them. And I, I've seen loads of developers get stuck because they're not good at raising money or they're not good at finding sites or they're not good at selling things. You know, so there's always somewhere they're normally quite good at delivery. They're not good at delivery. It costs them more money. They need to work to bigger margins on the deals that they've got. So that's the you know if you don't comp if you don't have it's a bit like what i always say to people if you do a 50, let's say you buy a house for 50 grand and you do a 30 grand refurb right you're not going to have an architect to qs a bat survey uh arboriculturalist coming around a test drill for this that and the other you, you that's not viable right it's not that sort of development you're gonna you need to get it done as cheaply as possible if you pay a project manager it's going to eat into your margin quite significantly, right? But yeah. for all of those jobs that you don't employ someone to do, guess what? You're doing it, right? You're not doing it. So understand, if you don't have a QX, you've got to know what the price of fish is, right? <laughs> if you don't, then at some point, someone's going to come around and say, yeah, it's 11,000 quid to plaster this. And you're going to go, is that, that sounds like a lot. Is that okay? But it's the only plaster I can find. You know, you need, you need to... You need to know these things. And it yeah, comes yeah. back to that organisational bit as well in terms of, you know, trying to run things as smoothly as you can. Yeah, and knowing the sort of basic fundamentals, isn't it? And and, and like you say, you don't need to know, you don't need, don't need to be able to do the huge development. No, no. Because that's the complexity, right? Yeah. That, that's, the, that's the real, that's when shit can really get the fan. Right? If you get one of those wrong, if you get the 50 grand house wrong, it's not the end of the world. Exactly. And that's why it's good for people to, because people say, what should I do first? And I say, let's do a nice cheap buy to let, right? Start yourself up. Don't worry. And things will come together. And you go back to your, if you're working with a partner, right? Should your first project, even if you've got, 
say you've both got portfolios. Should your first project be the biggest project you've both ever done, but together? Probably not. Unless you know these people really, really well, probably not. It's not something you want to be able to blow up your life and their life, is it, ultimately? So, you know, there's time. We've got time. And if you want to get busier, there's ways to get busier. You know, there's ways to scale this way and that way. But get the first, get the building blocks right first. What I had a couple of houses. They worked okay. They were nothing special at all. But it gave me a bit of room. It, it, it got me into it. It got me enthusiastic about it. And I, I was in a flat market back then. So I was sort of seeing prices pick up a little bit. Um, and I was seeing rents flat. I mean, nowadays, you're watching prices race away. And rents are doing similar in, in our portfolio. I'm sure, sure yours is similar, Terry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is. And what um, what's your sort of main skill set? Would you say then in your role sort of within these? Are you raising the money? Are you finding the deals? Or are you doing a bit of everything? What is your kind of? Would you say what would your is your main? So skill? I, I definitely do the relationship management with the big deal providers, and I do business development on that front. I suppose um, the strategy side, like the strategic reviews of the business models again that's well within my sort of purview um the final sign off on acquisition but it's nicely set up so that there are other people in the downstream who will do some the, the, the legwork effectively and then they'll bring it to me to say well, it'll be a 30 second or a five minute conversation rather than me doing three four hours of due diligence myself sort of thing so just uh, so final sign off of acquisition and then asset management side of it as well. I'm quite passionate about, I've bought a lot of stuff over the years where there's, you know, every deal's different, right? I have some stuff looks the same, but every deal is different. Every vendor is different. And I always like to try and ask, how did that one come about? How did they come to sell that house to us at that price? What happened? So that we can try and avoid that happening to us apart from anything else, right? And I've learned so much from that side of it and the one thing, the one piece of thing, one thing that's in common, 99% of the time, their management of the asset has been somewhere between utterly shocking and pretty poor, right? So if your asset management, and it's not exciting, property management is not exciting, tenancy management is not exciting, but asset, man- asset management is not exciting, but you've got to do it and you've got to do it well if you're going to be a holder in this game you've got to you have no choice so you might as well embrace it get good at it and what does it what does it mean because people say well what, is it just the property yeah, management I was about to ask what what do you class as asset management what, what? so the yeah the end to everything that's going to happen in the end-to-end life of that asset so what's it if you're like me right you do the deal that's really exciting yeah you pop a couple of champagne corks if it's a really good one whatever then you do the refurb, as I've explained to you. Absolutely bloody hate that bit. I don't really want to hear about it until it's over, right? Uh-huh. Then you're going to get, a, so just say we're talking about one house now. Then you get a tenant in, right? You get a tenant in, and ideally, I don't want to hear too much about that again. But let's say there's a number of things that might happen over the lifetime of that asset. So there'll be things that need to, to be considered, like the roof, the windows, this, that, and the other. You need a bit of a structured approach. If you sit there going, well, it only costs 20 quid a month maintenance to run a property. So you, you're kidding yourself because you haven't done the maths on how long will the roof last, how long will the electrics last, all of those things, right? So you've got to consider all of that. But what happens if it goes up massively in value in that area? Do you sell it? Do you remortgage it? 
you know, what's the tax position if you sell it? You need to think about all of those things as well on an ongoing basis, right? What happens if that area shoots up in value? And now, in the old days, it wasn't worth doing a loft extension. But now, suddenly, COVID, everybody needs an extra room for a home office, whatever. And actually, even though the prices have gone up, the prices for the works are worth doing. And then you can, you can again, refinance or do whatever you need to do. Where do you keep your loan to value at? You know, how do you run the investment side of your company? Where does it need to? Who are your funders? How many are there? Are you using fixed or floating rates? That side of it comes into the investment management, asset management side of the company. Um, so it's you've got your property level, and it will be all of those things like the tenancy management, the property management. Then you've got your sort of property as an asset level. So do we extend it? Do we do this? Do we buy next door? Because it could make us we can do something special if we can buy those two units together. Um, and then you've got your sort of your strategic level management of right, okay, where's interest rates going? Pretty topical one at the moment, you know. What what's that going to mean for the market? What's that going to mean for other people in the market? What opportunities is that going to create? What threats does it provide to me in my business? These things need consideration and they need someone to be having their eye on them because we're all playing the forecasting game, Terry, aren't we? Really, because we're we're both betting that house prices are going to go up over time. Now we've got, you know, a business behind that that brings in money and rent and stuff like that. Even if they didn't go up and they stayed the same, we're not going broke tomorrow. But if interest rates go to 20% and this happens and that happens, then we would we would be broke, right? Because yeah. it'll collapse the price of house. Now that it's not going to happen, but those are so disaster scenario planning. Okay, I mean, obviously we've just lived through a bloody disaster. You know, middle middle of 2020, we were going right. Went through the portfolio. What happens if everyone has to go on housing benefit? So I'm talking about before furlough, before this, that, and the other. Worst case scenario. So I was not panicking, but ringing some really clever people that I've met over the years who've worked in hedge funds, investment banks, stuff like that. And I was like, right, what's going to happen? And what are we going to do? What should I be thinking about doing about it? And it was very good because most of them were saying to me, well, look, you've got property. It's a hard asset. You know, even if the prices wobble a bit and all the rest of it, I don't think the credit side of it will be withdrawn, which obviously is what sent things into a downward spiral in 2008. And that, au contraire, the credit doors were opened wider than they've ever been. And then suddenly it was bounce back loans and free money season, wasn't it? So, um, and you know what's happened on the back of that? We've now got inflation in house prices, inflation in rents and inflation in the wider economy, which all was stuff that I saw coming because... I spend quite a bit of my time thinking about that horizon scanning. They tend to use the phrase in big corporates, but I'm trying to see around the corner. I, I prefer, I'm not very corporate speaker, as you've worked out so far. So horizon scanning, but seeing around the corner is, is, is really what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I, I love that. I think, um, again, it's not a thing that's commonly, certainly on the content that I watch and read. This type, what you just mentioned there, isn't really commonly spoke about. It's all about, the shiny penny. Look at what I have. The deal I've just got. How many units? What the cash flow is? How much I've just. Here's the keys. Look at the keys. Look at the keys. Yeah, that, that's what it is. It's not about. And it's it, you've got me thinking. That's a, it's a really really valid and, and point that I don't think many people are thinking that far ahead. But just two things I thought when you you said that. Um, do you know from the outset on the on the the process of purchasing? Are you thinking about that far ahead? Are you thinking about twenty years time? As in when the mortgage runs out, are you thinking that far? 
and looking at a cost analysis and things. And then second question would be like, when do you, do you review it every year, every quarter? What, what do you do there? So, so look, only an idiot would try and predict 20 years in the future with any kind of realistic uh, idea on what will happen. Now, there are tools in the economy that, that do go 20 years, like 20 year government bonds, for example. You can always go and see what they're doing. And that gives you an idea of what a very liquid market thinks of what's going to happen to interest rates over those 20 years, for, for example. Right? Now, it changes every day. And at the moment, when you've got troops on the, the Ukrainian border and whatever else, it changes quite a lot sometimes when, when things change, as the, as the temperature changes of the, the geopolitical situation. But I, I obviously, I mean, look, I have a plan for one year. I have a plan for three years. I have a plan for five years. I have a plan for 10 years. I have a plan for 20 years. The plan for one year will be quite detailed and there'll be a number of things that are in it, but it's still not something to look at and go, I can't do that because it's not in my plan because a deal might come along that changes the plan and I'm going to appraise it on its merits, you know, but it will be there, something to look at and think, why am I doing, why am I spending my time on that? Because that's not going to help me achieve what's in the plan, right? The 20-year plan is much more like, you know, three really high-level points, realistically, because that's all you can you can know over the, or, or even think that you can know over the course of those 20 years. So you've got to be, you've got to be realistic about that stuff. You've got to be, um, but you know, if you didn't think property was going to go up and rents were going to go up, you know, we might be able to time and everybody else did think that might be time to get out of the game, mightn't it? So uh, that's yeah. the first question. The se- what was the second question again? Mate? So I should have written it down. So, so yeah, yeah. And always a big question. The first part, that's right. It was, yeah. So with the main one was about like, how far do you forecast? But I get that point that you you can't forecast too long, so it's just a sort of overarching strategy almost, isn't it? I, I guess on that first point. The second point was um, like, how regularly do you review your assets? If you if you asset managing, like, is it monthly, quarterly, yearly? What what is that? Um, so th- there's different levels in which we will review them. So. For example, we would update what it's. We use Home Track, which is what a lot of the big lenders use, as you will know, to value things from the desktop. We'll also use a, a website called Property Data, which is reasonably good at valuing stuff. We'll also look at the Rick's way of doing it, as in six uh, uh, last six months transactions within a quarter of a mile, as long as it's in a relatively densely populated area. And we'll review that quarterly. Right? We'll keep an eye on that quarterly. We'll always review something when a tenancy ends as well. We'll always review something when a mortgage term ends as well. Um, other than that, so it's not really necessarily every three months, six months a year. We'll always have a review when the annual accounts are done for an investment company as well. But for a, on a month-by-month basis, it'll be a very short snapshot, very short snapshot in some of the companies because not very big of a, a, a little statement what, what's the big stuff that we need to know about this month quite often it's nothing right and what do the management accounts look like and how different do they look to the last three months six months 12 quarter half year whatever is there anything i need to see that might take two minutes because it might be because you know rental rental can be boring it's lovely when it's boring because it means it means stuff hasn't gone wrong right <laughs> i love boring brilliant so it yeah. can be just right. That's all good. That's all good. Uh, it can be. Hang on a second. We just need to drill down into this, and that's when we might get into. And I think when you go back to that point about the one-year plan and things like that, then some people can have a tendency. It depends on personality types and stuff as well. Like 
I'm not a big planner, Jim. Like if you if you let me go and I'm not in the environment that I'm in, I'm not a big planner. I think I'm quite happy to see what happens and let, let's see see what life brings along like that. You know, outside of a outside of a a, a court of a a business mindset, generally speaking. You know, I don't mind. Uh, you need to relax sometimes from anything else because I'm taking in a lot of information. I'm doing a lot of you know calculating and drinking things in and changing my forecasts slowly over time uh, and I, I write quite a bit of stuff about that um once a week as well which keeps me honest because i've got people who read it i've got people who want to read it and it generates really good conversations um so i, I do that deliberately um so uh i think you you i mean i'm i'm also very interested in that stuff like the macroeconomic picture and what's going to happen next and employment and uninflation and because obviously I'm heavily stuck into that stuff. My my tenants are in an, a certain demographic. You know, they're not the people necessarily. The, the, if you just talked about income, they won't be the poorest twenty percent, right? But they won't be the richest forty percent either. They're going to be in that in between sort of twenty and sixty in terms of percentiles. So I'm thinking, what's going to hurt them? So at the moment, how's the cost of inflation? How's the cost of living stuff going to hurt them? How are their wages doing? Actually, do you know what? The people in that bracket at the moment, they're doing okay because if, they, if they're working in manufacturing, hospitality, stuff like that, wages have gone up a load. They've had to, to try and get people. It's actually the people who are like working in office who are, who are not getting pay rises at all who are going to get squeezed some of the hardest. So that's a bit of a tangent. I'm prone to going on tangents, as you will have noticed by now, Terry, but uh, I hope that answers a bit of the question anyway. No, no, I love what you're saying because it, it, it's all really valid points. And I think some of the stuff that you're saying isn't stuff that a lot of people are shouting about on social media. And I think it's a, it's an important message. And, and, and Well, mate, it's not it's not sexy and it doesn't sell courses. So what do you expect? <laughs> what do you expect? Selling courses. But, good. you know, it's a, it's, a really, it's a really valid point because go back to what I was saying earlier about I bought lots of little portfolios off people and things like that. And it just stuns me that they they would have not a lot of money in the bank. There's lots of landlords, you know, asset rich, cash poor. Yeah. Not a lot of money in the bank. They might have a million pound on paper of net assets or one and a half million or two million. Right. And at the, at the point of exit, that's where they can lose half of that money dead easily, dead easily if they're not careful. But they haven't put any time and effort. And I'm not saying that I, I, I read the books, I listen to the podcast. I do love it. I, I don't see that as work. I'm genuinely interested. You don't have to do that yourself, but you need to find someone who you trust who does do that so you can listen to what they say and ideally find half a dozen of them so you can get some different opinions. And people just put no work into this stuff and they just think, well, you know, I hear that one thing, my magic words from a vendor. Well, you know what? It only owes me 80 grand. I just think it's totally irrelevant, right? If it's worth 200 grand and it owes you 80, why are we entering into that conversation? It's not going to help you because if I give you 81, are you going to be happy? I'm going to be happy if I do. So, you know, mindset around psychology, negotiation, you've got to stay strong till the end. Sometimes this game can beat people down and I've seen it. So there's a lot around, you know, we were talking before we came on air, weren't we, about keeping yourself healthy and things like, what do you do to do that? What's your daily routine? And it's, the, you know, these days, there's so much more good stuff out there about that on, on YouTube and everywhere else that it, it really, you've got to try and balance things. Because if you don't, and I've definitely been guilty of it in my life before, where I've not balanced things very well at all. And luckily, I've got some good people around me who've kind of given me a slap around the chops and said, 
right, you need to do more of this, or you need to do less of this, or you need to do... And it, 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 you've got to take that stuff on board. But every, everyone's a work in progress, aren't they, you know? No, I love, I love that. And it does seem a common thing that a lot of highly successful people like yourself have been unbalanced at one point. It's normally when you start an office and that you sacrifice everything for work. And then as you get more successful, hopefully you pull it back a little bit. Um, some people obviously don't pull it back. There's really unhealthy billionaires, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I think it's another important point to say, and it, it's uh, important for people to be aware of. Um, if, if we just go back to sort of your your portfolio, so I think you mentioned that the first six years it was minimal purchases. I think it's six or eight, and maybe it was, and then it's went to is it thirteen years that you've you've been buying property yeah, now? Yeah, accidental. I'm not from '08, so I suppose I'm in my fourteenth year now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the first six minimal, so then the last eight years, seven or eight yeah. years, it's yeah. went obviously quite substantial. So is, is yeah. the case that been buying portfolios as you mentioned in large blocks of flats? So, yeah, that's a good question because one of the things we haven't mentioned that really sort of turbocharged it a bit. Um, I started using bridging finance, and uh, I was scared of bridging for years, and and to be fair, you know. I was scared in an environment where bridging was dead expensive, right? It was really pricey, 20% a year sort of money. And I just thought, I don't know how that could really stack up. But of course, that was my perception from being outside of that world. I'm sure there might have been cheaper bridges around at the time, but I didn't know about them. And then I, I, I saw a block of flats in an auction. It was a fantastic deal. It was in the wrong auction for this block at the wrong time it was in a summer auction so not as many people around it had bad catalogue positioning and it was the wrong auction because they normally sell houses and flats between 40 and 100 grand and this block of flats was in there for half a million quid and it stood out like a sore thumb you know so it was absolutely ideal from the buyer's perspective and the beauty of it was and the reason why I thought we wouldn't get it was the rent passing at the time I think was about 67 grand and I just thought, and I've seen this over the years, where if it's fully let, this wasn't actually fully let, and it did have a few problems, and that, and you need you need that because otherwise, I've been to see blocks um, further further out where they're ten flats, tidy, fully let, let a decent rents, forty thousand pound rent passing, let's say, and that'll just sell for over four hundred grand because someone will be sitting in an armchair. The capital to deploy and just say, right, I'm going to plug that in. Right, that's what that's what I'm going to do. This one wasn't so easy. It had a few LHA tenancies, had a fair few challenges. But I still thought this is going to sell at over 60, 670 grand because it's got 67,000 rent passing. And people just looking, oh, 10% is a good return. 10% is a good return. So I thought, I, I'm, long story short, we ended up getting it for 555, which was a cracking result. Um, and we used a bridge. And the reason why I was happy to use the bridge was we could service the bridge with the rent, with the net rent that was coming off the building. So it didn't create a big hole in our cash flow. It wasn't particularly risky. It was a very reasonable rate. And that was the first sort of baby step towards the bridge. So then I, I went back and looked at my business model and thought, well, hang on. <clears throat> Let's say this is coming in in rents every month, right? What about if that much was going out on bridging, right? But we've still got a bit of so we've still got positive cash flow and we can buy because we could put down less smaller deposits we could buy two or three properties for every one that we're buying at the moment so it's like stretching your equity 
is, is how I would describe it. So when we started stretching the equity, suddenly it was like, and then got better relationships with bridging companies, got cheaper rates, found people who would fund 95, 100% of deals and stuff like that. It's like, it was easier than getting private investor money all the time, for example. Historically, I've not been bad at raising private investor money, but if I, I would say I could have done more, could have done more over the years on that. Um, try doing a bit more of that these days, generally. Um, but then also you've got people who say, like, well, and you've got so many houses, why do you need private investor money? It's like, well, because we're still trying to grow at a pretty rapid rate, right? So we still need to bring in. Uh, and also, when you're doing bigger deals, it might be, Take, take your 50 grand house you might especially if it's the only thing you're doing at the moment you might be in and out of that within the six months right or eight months or four months if you if your mortgage lender at the end is uh is, is not using one of the surveying firms that i refuse to use because they never value it up you know um whereas if you're doing a, a purchase of a site with 76 units on it or whatever then it's going to be about an 18 month process to get the, the purchase finance through to the end because there's different obstacles in the way, uh, there's different things going on. Well, I'm saying, and there's also there was a lot of optimization to do. So there's a lot of moving. Are you going to refinance it when you're 30 percent of the way through the work you got to do, or 50, or 70? Well, it's a, it's a balancing act, isn't it? You know, so it tends to stretch out the time horizon of a deal. You speak to anyone who develops big sites, and they'll tell you, you know, a couple of years. In fact, at the moment, they'll tell you, well. How long is the planning going to take? So it might be three years at the moment to do something coast to coast. And if you're going to sell it and you might struggle with a few at the end, it might be four years or something, you know. So yes. you're thinking in very long time horizons and you need funding that matches that time horizon. And by starting to use that bridging and building the relationships with the bridging lenders, that was another thing that really unlocked the, the capacity and the pace of doing stuff. And then in terms of just finding the portfolios, it's been a case of sort of, spotting them when they've gone into auction spotting them through agents because agents are not good at selling portfolios the problem is to manage expectations of people listening there aren't loads of these things up for sale in any one year around the country you know it's a small it's like trying to buy multi-unit freehold blocks they're great things to buy yeah but there aren't many of them to shoot at and there's quite a few people looking for them so it's a lot of work and, you know, we've had portfolios, we've bought them. It's taken 18 months from first contact to completed transaction, 18 months. Now, you've got a funding organised. You've got to be able to draw it down when you need to, et cetera, et cetera. You might take your eye off the ball. You might have spent 30, 40, 100 grand on legals before what if the deal falls over. There's all those extra risks that you add, that you add in that you need to be cognizant of. So, that's why I think, you know, you build that machine first that provides the income. And then if you don't need to that income to live off, you can still take risks with that income that are not big risks. Because if you do lose some of it, you've still got this income looking after you. And in the background, because of the asset management side of it, it's improving year on year. And because, you know, inflation is one of our great friends, realistically, in this game, we should be laughing at the moment at, you know, five, six percent inflation seven eight wherever it's going to go up to now it doesn't really work like that because if it's squeezing our tenants it's not good um but in five years time we might look back and think blimey between 2020 and 2024 or something we had it off <laughs> we really did you know so we need to uh, you, you sort of you live at, you live at the coal face and then you try and zoom out of it and that's the that's the sort of world i live in i suppose 
Yeah, fair play. You mentioned auctions a lot. Is that has that been a real key to to what you've achieved in the in the scale of it? Well, what you what you know, I mean, it's been tough the last twelve months. Don't get me wrong, but you know, you 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 you've got as much out there. You know, so twenty five thousand, thirty thousand properties a year change hands through auction lots, or twenty five to thirty thousand lots, right? So there's it's not huge numbers, but because we've been geographically quite flexible you know, as I've sort of led the strategy that way, we're only limited by the amount of stuff we can analyse and transact on, you know. So we've, bought, we've had months where we've bought 15 different properties at auction. So, yeah, that's definitely been helpful. A um, ton of work has gone into that. Absolutely, there's a ton of work behind the scenes. And uh, I, 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 if you're looking at getting into auction, I would advise anyone to start looking. A, I'd say go along, although these days, there's much more online than there is in the room, but you get it's a good way to learn. Don't be don't be too um, impatient, right? But also look at stuff that hasn't sold. Now, if you've got more time and you're more interested, in you then then I'd look at the whole catalogue. I'd look at it as soon as it comes out. I'd try and observe the auction and make some notes. You don't have to transact. You don't have to go to viewings. You don't have to do any of that. Just have some thoughts on each one before it comes out. Look at what it sold for. Look at what you think about that sale price, because some of it you'll just be shaking your head thinking, how can someone pay that for it? But it you know, only takes two enthusiastic people to make an auction, you know. Um, and then look at what's left at the end. And the best way to start transacting an auction and getting used to it, I think, is look at stuff that hasn't sold yet. So the, the, the post-auction lots, because there's some people sometimes think, oh, it's because there's something really wrong with them, Right. If that was the case, that was, that's effectively saying the auction market is perfect and it gets it right every time. And, mate, I promise you, it absolutely doesn't. It, yeah. No way. It rarely gets it right any time, let alone every time. Now, on average, it's a, and so what a lot of people don't understand about how markets work, right? On average, it does a pretty good job. But, you know, the, the seven-foot man drowns in the five-foot river on average because there's a bit that's nine foot deep, right? So averages are useful, but they're also very dangerous, yeah? So there's a lot of good stuff in auction. and it, But, I mean, to be fair, the wholesale, I've probably bought more from the wholesalers in the end. But, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily need to. And there's people who have got, because I'm geographically varied, like we don't have a ton of agents we have brilliant relationships with, right? There's a lot of people who have invested in their local area who've built three or four or five or ten phenomenal relationships with agents. And I wouldn't put people off doing that. It's a very good thing to do early on. What, what do you want to do? You want to make their life easy. You want to be someone who can do what they say they're going to do. And those opportunities that will come up, you want to be the person who gets those phone calls, ultimately. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I've just applied, wherever it is, it, auction's very transactional, right? And people make the mistake of thinking, right, the hammer goes down and I bought it and that's it. And that's not the case. The auctioneer is still worth building a relationship with, right? The people who do the sweeping up after the auction and set and try and sell the, the, the post-auction lots, they're some of the most important people you'll ever talk to. The people who, who onboard the properties and talk to the vendor when it's just gone up for auction, if you're going to try and buy pre-auction, it's difficult, but it's doable. They're really important. All of these people are people. And, and who, that's, a, that's true by definition, isn't it? All these people are people. But there's 30, 40% of lots these days are going in from traders. So can you get to the traders? How do you get to know the traders? Well, they're normally at the auction. 
and they normally look like traders. Right? So you can spot a trader a mile off, you know what I mean? Pretty relaxed, baseball cap, jeans, younger than you, and you're thinking, why has he got a Ferrari outside of it? That's a trader. <laughs> have a chat with them. Because, again, what do you do with anybody in this industry? You try and make their life easier. Because if you can do that, then you can build relationships with people. If you can do that, you can transact on a lot of stuff. People will trust you. They will, you will build and build and build. And, it, and then it's it's up to you where you where you stop, really. I never sort of sat down and said, my 20-year my, my goal don't involve a, necessarily a number of houses or, or a number in terms of wealth or things like that. That's not what drives me, you know. But what drives me is building the best machine that I can and then continuing letting that machine work and there's a lot of people that, that eat, there's mouths to feed out of that machine. And I take some responsibility for feeding them. But I enjoy the fact that everybody can share in, you know, what's been a pretty incredible journey. I hate that word journey, but never mind. But, you know, it's a, it's a good, it's been, it's been good fun, but there's, there's lots to go. And because we've reinvested so much, it's not like the Ferraris parked outside, you know, it, it's been a very much a, sensible gratification i wouldn't really say delayed but sensible let's say sensible i think what a lot of what you said there comes to the relationship management right that you mentioned is one of your skill set is managing the relationship with the auctioneers and and the traders and all that and being a people person i think is just in life in general is one of the best skills you can possibly have right um absolutely i, I was going to come on to but you kind of answered it. i was going to come on to like what's what's the angle or what's next but if it's not a number of property it's not a num- you know a cash flow number or a, you know a wealth number what what is it that drives you then i know you said the machine but like how do you measure the machine yeah so I, I i've always um everything i've ever done i thought there's probably a limited time horizon to which i will do this which obviously there is because at some point i'm going to die and that that's going to end the time horizon of doing it right but I've, I've seen wind as a thinking entrepreneurial. I've seen windows of opportunity, and I've jumped through those windows. And sometimes they stayed open for five years, and sometimes they stayed open for five minutes. And that's the the nature of the the serial entrepreneur's life, really. Mm. Now, over the 13, 14 now years that I've been doing this, certainly after two thousand and eight, obviously the base rate went down. A big part of me getting involved was prices had come down. Rental stock was doing well. Mortgages were cheap, right? Really simple overall view of the economy. But that was the, I thought, well, this is, this is something to get into. You know, there's got to be something to get into. And of course, you know, we, I played Monopoly when I was a kid, took it too seriously, all of that, all, all that stuff that will resonate with people. Um, but I will buy as long as the landscape for acquisition looks sensible to me. Because... This is the thing about the limited company, right? It's going to outlive me, realistically. And it may be that my kids get involved in it. It may be that they don't. I'm certainly not putting it on a plate for them. If they ever listen to this, sorry, guys, you're going to have to work for it yourself. So absolutely, I wouldn't want to ruin their lives by doing that. Definitely not. Um, Because I've seen it enough times. So while it's sensible to buy, I'll be buying. If that acquisition landscape changes, I won't be buying anymore and I'll be consolidating and even might be selling because one of the beauties of property is that you usually get quite a bit of time to do stuff. So, you know, it's not like I've never sold anything. You know, I've sold maybe 
25, 50 units over over the years. That, that so yeah, five five to ten percent of what we've done. Mm. Are you? Sorry, just, I'm not, I'm not against selling altogether. You know, definitely, definitely open to it. But I'm not a trader. I'm an investor at the end of the day. And there's a tax structure. There's a lot of stuff around. And I'll have to consider that. But the, these days, you know, I've got three kids. My youngest is five. You know, I've got plenty to worry about with her and the, the older two as they go through school and all the rest of it. So work's a bit of a break from all of that, mate. To be honest. Don't let my wife hear this podcast, but work's a bit of a break. <laughs> That's a relief. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, get, I get you on that point, definitely. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting just to see what sort of drives you and, and where you are with it. Um, but fair play, fair play. I mean, I can speak to you for quite a while, but I'm conscious of time. I've got a load of questions I want to ask, so we'll just maybe on, on a couple. Um, uh, what have we got? Um, yeah, I mean, but we've covered loads of the, the, the great stuff I wanted to get out, get from the episode, which which is fantastic. Um, just what any advice that you would give to someone, you know, the, I just find the, the scale that you've done in eight years is fascinating. Anybody, any advice that you could give, could give to someone that, that really wants to ramp it up because there's a lot of ambitious listeners who really wants to go through that trajectory of buying. I'm assuming you've been, you know, knocking on a hundred units some years, sometimes more. So what advice would you give around that and any sort of real red flags to watch out for and any things that you really think people should be doing? Yeah. I mean, we, and we've kind of mentioned some of this as we've gone through. So one red flag wise, don't do stuff that's going to blow up your portfolio. Right, don't risk everything that you've done so far to do something. I hear people, some people have certainly done more than I have, to then say, like, I put it all on the line to do this deal. I just think there's something fundamentally self-destructive about that mindset. So don't do it. It's not right to do that. It's stupid to do that. If you like risk, go and do water skiing or whatever else, you know, jump off some cliffs or whatever, but don't don't do that because it's it's not the right thing to do. So I think I would say you start with your financial savvy and your financial attractiveness right you've said today already i talk about things that other people don't talk about yeah and that's because they interest me but they're also bloody important to my businesses yeah so i'd, I'd consider that the financial side of it I, i've said we bought a portfolio from someone who their one mistake was their financial structure was wrong and so they had to sell something they otherwise wouldn't have sold it but they sold it to us and they sold it to us with a massive discount and it was a fantastic portfolio to buy yeah. So and they were much bigger than much bigger than, than my portfolio, much, much bigger. They had much bigger fish to fry. So the fact they they gave away about a one and a half million quid discount didn't hurt them because they were putting the money into something that was going to make them five million quid. But I still don't see the reason to take a one and a half million quid haircut because then you've only made three and a half instead of five. And there's probably a lot of risk in making the five million, you know. So financial structure and attractiveness, you've got to think about that all the time. And my part of the strength over the years that I've had is by not relying on by by cutting my cloth quite tight, by not saying I'll make it, you know, people have these ideas. I want to make three grand a month. I want to make 10 grand a month. These are the two numbers that you've tended to hear I have over the last 10 years all the time, right? Why? And when you get to 10 grand a month, what are you going to do with it? And is and, and reality in reality, is your life going to be any better by spending that 10 grand a month? Than it is when you've got the three grand a month. It's probably not, is it? It's probably not. Yeah. No. As long as you, as soon as you pass financial security, and it, it's, it's documented, you know, there's plenty of literature on this. You don't get any happier. 
So if you're sitting there expecting to get happier because you got 500 houses or 5,000 houses, doesn't really work like that. I was always quite happy, so I'm all right, you know. But it, you've got you've got to think about it from that perspective. So can you afford? So I, I was talking earlier on about using that much of my cash flow. You know, using let's say using half my cash flow um, to to cane on bridging finance in order to scale faster, or to cane on investor finance and things like that. So if you can push back the gratification side of it a bit more, and that that's part of the. So what do you do to make your walking around money? I would. At a really simple level think right over here i've got my walking around money this is what i need every month and if if and i watch that quite closely you know if it starts getting in any trouble why is it is it because we suddenly picked up a more expensive lifestyle is it because the electricity bill doubled is it because whatever whatever right so that's over here and that's small really small compared to what the, what's the business doing what are the businesses doing every month but this focus has got to try and be you know, how are, we, how are we tax efficient? There's a number of ways in which we're structured without being offshore and all the other things that you can do. There's some great tax efficiency within property limited companies that a lot of people don't really understand. And a lot of that is also around how long you're going to wait to take any money out. Because you want to pay dividends, right? you've got to make profits. That's the law. That's HMRC's law of the land. So how do you extract money without that being the case? How, how many ways are there to do this? How do you put money into a company efficiently? So all that side. So, you know, again, not not re if you want to read up on that sort of stuff, the Tax Cafe books are a good place to start with a guy called Carl Bailey. He writes these quite accessible, about 20 quid a go each book. They're decent, you know, and then give you a working knowledge. If you're like me, you want to know all of that stuff. I like knowing things, right? If you're sensible and you run businesses well, and you get just get someone else to do it, right? <laughs> just get, get someone else who you trust. So you've got to trust your financial planners and accountants if you're going to try and scale properly. And if they don't understand it, and it's not just your accountant because it never is. You know, you're the person who sits in the middle who takes advice from the lawyer, the accountant, the surveyor, everybody involved in the process. So you need to know enough to be confident in making the decision. So the accountant will sometimes say, well, this would be good because it will save a bit of tax. But is it good if the mortgage lending then evaporates or the mortgage is at a much higher rate or all of those other things? No, it isn't. So you need to understand all the consequences of being able to, to scale up quickly. What will For us, all that bridging interest has created a tax shield because we've caned off a load. We're not, we're not necessarily paying tax on profits because the profits aren't there because they've been reinvested in the company. And again, yeah. that comes back to that get your head around compound interest put a pound in a jar every day or in a savings account for a year and if you can't visualize it you'll soon see what it what it means and what it does or put a pound in a jar every day and every day put an extra pound in so in day two you put in two pound in day three you put in three pound how much money have you got by the end of the year it's a lot right so think about think about how that, that's what you're trying to do and I, i've kind of scaled that in jv's as i said earlier to you you know instead of doing one on my own i've been able to do four or five with partners right so that's four or five times the speed less of the equity but four or five times the speed um that also gave me scale to get involved in agency which has brought me fruit over the years so i've bought and sold letting agencies estate agencies they've been they've all worked out brilliantly but there's been some really worthwhile transactions in there and that's that's another arm of the business that that is pretty good if you can fight again back to what the values of the person you might work with on that basis right if someone's got an operational letting agency in 
let's say all Terry's properties are in Newcastle and he doesn't have his own agency and he finds someone who he can potentially do business with, who's got the same values, who can run that portfolio every day and that takes a load of headache away from Terry. That's something worth considering, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? So how do you take out the pain? How do you 80-20 things that you spend your time doing and where's your, at a really simple level, where's your, everyone does it. And I absolutely include myself in this side. Nowhere near perfect, right? Massive work in progress, yeah? But low value tasks, medium value tasks, high value tasks. What are they? What did you do today? What did you do yesterday? Why did you do that? What's back to your one year plan, right? Can those low value tasks be outsourced to somebody else when you get a bit bigger? Can the mid-value tasks be outsourced to somebody else or is a partner doing them or how do you deal with them so that you can only spend your time on, you know, and some days I do it. I think I've I've done something to update some spreadsheet or something myself because someone else has got it wrong. And then the next minute I'm getting a phone call about a deal that might make a six or seven figure sum of money. And I just think in my head, I think, what am I doing? Why have I done that job there? Why isn't that person? And and that's part part of, you know, small businesses a lot. You, You know that, you know. Yeah, definitely. And a lot of people go through that that process. I don't want to say journey, the process of trying to do everything themselves before they then realize, you know, I can't do all this myself. And you certainly can't scale to your level without having team and, and support a support structure around you. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I, honestly, I think you give some great advice on, on different parts of property in, in, in this this process. Um, I'm really conscious of your time, so I think we'll. Just the last question I ask everybody, Adam, is the show's called the Rags to Riches show. So um, being rich can mean loads of different things. It can mean rich in monetary terms, assets, time, whatever. But what that phrase, being rich, what does it mean to you? Oh, it, I would describe it. We talked a little bit about balance earlier. And, and the word I'd really use is having options. So... Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think of myself as a bit of a luxury player. Like yesterday, for example, I did some, I didn't get paid at all for what I did yesterday. It was a voluntary thing. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely loved it. How could I do that? Because I've got the option to do that ultimately. So that having those options, I think I see that as, as really being rich, to be honest with you. And all the stuff behind it, well, it is what it is. If we have a, if, uh, you know, someone drops a nuclear bomb on the UK tomorrow or whatever, 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 all the mortgage rates go up to 35%, we're all in trouble. So that could be gone. I like the old um, John Paul Getty, you know, if you uh, if you owe the bank £100, that's your problem. If you owe the bank £100 million, that's their problem. And I like I like that one. That's uh, that, that's rich. Yeah, lots of that much debt. High, high gearing, high liquidity, Warren Buffett's yeah. phrase, right? I love that. I love it. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree that the option thing is it, it is what everybody wants. And if you've got the more options you've got, you know, the, probably the happier you, you will be. Um, yeah, I love that. No, no, thank you so much, Adam. If there's any, if, if anyone who's listening wants to reach out to you, follow what you're doing or anything like that, what's the best way for them to reach out or follow follow you? Sure thing. Yeah, I think I'm up to my limit on Facebook. So LinkedIn's good. Uh, Adam G. Lawrence, send me a connection request on LinkedIn. Tell me what you thought of the podcast. I'd love, love to hear from people. Um, I also write, I mentioned earlier on, I, I write a piece about, normally about property focused, but about the economy um, and about the sort of things we were talking about in the middle of the podcast today, every Sunday. 
So I put that out on Facebook. It's in our Partners in Property community group. And I also put it out on my LinkedIn timeline as well. So that's free. You can have a look at it. You can tell me that I need to speak uh, English a bit better because uh, sometimes I use some big words that I should have maybe thought about a bit more and drilled uh-huh. down a little bit for people who haven't done as much economics as I have. Um, but I love, I love interacting with people. I love hearing from people. It's a, it's a people game at the end of the day, Terry. So, uh, yeah, LinkedIn or Facebook would be ideal, mate. Cool. So, sounds good. I'm certainly going to read your content because you said some things today to get me thinking. So um, thank you for coming on, mate. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for having me, mate. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Adam.